of Galatians. So I want you to turn back to Galatians chapter 3 with me this morning, if you would please. It's been well said that the gospel and the focus of the book of Galatians is that good news, that good news. It is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reality of what the gospel brings by faith, by faith, and on the basis of God's grace, it brings a righteousness that we cannot gain in and of ourselves. And it's over and over again in the book of Galatians as Paul is arguing for the fact that that comes to us by faith and by faith alone, in Christ alone. I'm almost, but I'm not going to go there. (laughs) Yeah, I am. I'm almost going to challenge you. Give me the five solas of the Reformation right now. Can you do it? If you can't, you have to run laps around the church after the service. By grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone, in the Scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone. Yeah, Paul would love to just cheer that on with us this morning. It's been well said that the gospel is good news only for one category of people. And that category of people, on a human level, no one will be saved who does not first realize they are lost, right? And the backdrop of the good news is the reality of the bad news of the condition of man as a fallen sinner before a holy God. And that is what Paul presents to us in Galatians 3, verses 10 through 12. Just by way of review, and I won't get stuck in it, Lord willing, but where we were at last week as he transitions from the example of Abraham who was justified by faith and repeats that in 6 through 9. Then the Apostle Paul moves to the reality of anyone who's seeking to get to heaven by human effort alone, by the law, by works, by works of the law. And he tells them in verse 10, if that's the route you're on, you're under the curse of God. Look at verse 10. As many as of the works of the law are under a curse. And he backs it up with Scripture, remember? So he says, you're going that route, you're missing it, you're under divine judgment, a curse, because the law won't bring that righteousness that you desire. There's a righteousness in the law, but you're going to have to live how perfectly? To fulfill the law, to get your way into heaven, without one single sin. And there's only one who qualified to that end, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ who qualified to be the substitute for our sin. Can you say amen to that this morning? And then he says in verse 11, I'm just telling you, no one is ever saved by the works of the law because no one is justified by law, verse 11, before God. It has always been by faith, always. Then again in verse 12, he says, if you're on the road with reference to justification in the law, then you're contrary to the reality of how man is justified because he's justified by faith. And the one who practices the law and seeks that justification there alone will never achieve the righteousness that he desires because of what we've already noted. So in verse 14, verse 13, he gives us the cure to all of this, doesn't he? 
And this is what we come back to and what we land on and what I want to go from this morning in verse 13. And that is, we have an answer to this problem, and that is verse 13. And here is the gospel expressed to us. Tell me what is this good news. There it is. Christ redeemed us. The us is those who are trusting in him and him alone by faith. Christ redeemed us out from the curse of the law. How? Having become a curse for us. There is the, there is the essence of the good news in Christ solving our problem by becoming the very curse for us and redeeming us by the blood of the Lamb, by his, own, by his own life. Does that mean the law is bad? Nope, the law is good. The law is good. And Paul's going to mention this later on in chapter 3, the goodness of the law, how it was a guardian for him. It led him. It pushes him. It exposed the reality. The law exposed the reality of his sin and drove him to the Savior. And that's a wonderful thing to take place. I have a quote from my good friend, uh, Doc Watson, concerning justification by faith through the gospel versus the purpose of the law in a believer's life. Remember, the psalmist says what? Oh, how I love thy law. So we love the law of God. We just know God didn't give it to us to save us rather than appoint us to the person of Jesus Christ. And here's Doc's good uh, quote. He says, the law sends us to the gospel for our justification and the gospel sends us to the law to frame our way of life. Isn't that good? Just think about that for a moment. Yep, the law points us to the hope that we have in Christ. But also the gospel sends us back to the law because the law does show us a righteousness to which God has given to us to live and to, to, please, to please him. So it is by faith and faith alone that the apostle is driving home here and we could sum up verse 13 in this way as we read it again Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us so by faith alone in the redeemer faith alone in Christ person and work who he is son of God what he's done in the work of the cross so Jesus took your curse he died your death he paid your penalties you hear that and so hopefully this morning Again, I ask you, can you put your name in verse 13 and say, Christ redeemed me from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for me? Ryrie's theology sums up verse 13 by saying we're under the curse, all of us. Jesus became the curse, obviously, and we have been removed out from the curse, ex agarazzo, the word, away from it, out of the bondage of it and into this, into this new life that he has given us. And Job says he plans to see that Redeemer. Don't we love that passage in Job where he talks about his Redeemer? As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and the last he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I, see, I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see and not another. My heart faints within me. I'm going to behold my Redeemer. I have a quote in my Bible from James Boyce. He says, Job didn't know Jesus by name, but he sure knew him all the same. <laughs> and he says, I'm going to see him one day. That was his, his great hope. Isaiah predicts the reality and distinguishes the Redeemer in Isaiah 44, verse 6. 
Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and the last, and there's another God beside me. And if we wanted to, but we won't take the time this morning, we could parallel that statement at the end of verse 6 with what Jesus Christ, the risen Christ, says to John the Apostle in chapter 1 when he says, I'm the Alpha and I am the Omega. I am the first and the last, the beginning and the end, all found in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And oftentimes, if you do some reading on the topic in various theologies, Uh, on the topic of redemption, the person of Christ and his redeeming work, and the doctrine of redemption as a whole, you'll come across a story that is often given to illustrate the concept of redemption. And I'm going to pull it right out of one theology. It's a theology by Swindoll. Everybody heard of Charles Swindoll? He has a theology with uh, Roy Zook that they have uh, put together. It's a helpful theology, very readable. And this story goes this way. And that print, oh, I need to look this way. It's a little light over there, okay? And the story is entitled Twice Bought. Maybe you've heard it. A little boy built his own boat. He took it to a stream to try it out on the water. As it floated along, the wind caught it and pulled it out beyond the boy's reach, and he lost the boat. One day in his town, he passed the window of a pawn shop, and he saw his boat that he lost. And it was for sale, and the only way he could get it back was to buy it back. So the boat was twice his. He made it, and he bought it. And likewise, every believer in Christ, every believer in Christ is a twice-owned person. We are God's both by creation and by redemption. Philip Bliss says it so well, and listen to the... uh, the great Christology and the great soteriology concerning the person of the Lord Jesus Christ as Redeemer in these words of the hymn. I will sing of my Redeemer and his wondrous love to me. On the cruel cross he suffered from the curse, the curse, right back to verse 10, to set me free. I will sing of my Redeemer and his heavenly love to me. He from death to life hath bought me, Son of God, with him to be. Sing, O sing, of my Redeemer with his blood he purchased me. There's redemption. On the cross he sealed my pardon, paid the debt, and made me free. Amen. How he expresses that so beautiful, just like the great hymns that we sang already this morning. So, redemption regarding verse 13 and the results of that in verse 14 that he gives to us, the benefits of this redemption. But we see in these verses and are reminded of the fact that redemption is fully and finally accomplished in the death of Christ as the Redeemer, paid in full once for all. Everything about payment, everything about what we call penal substitution, the payment of a penalty as our substitute, paid in full completely. It is finished in Jesus Christ. Amen? But when we think about this particular doctrine and we begin to read it in the context of the Bible as a whole, and that's what I want to do for a few moments to lead us to the Lord's Supper, it is a theme that is all over the scriptures, and it conveys God as a great deliverer, delivering mankind and sinners from despair and the bondage, even the own slavery and bondage 
uh, from beginning of the Scriptures to the end of the Scriptures since the fall and the ultimate redemption of all, of all things. So what I want to do is I want to take the rest of the time this morning and I want to broaden the theme. We're going to move around a little bit in our Bibles. That's going to be okay, isn't it? We're going to move around a little bit in our Bibles and I want you to see how there is a picture of redemption for us pointing to Christ all over the Scriptures. And hopefully, my prayer is... Now, this is not a how-to message. We're going to get to chapter 5 and 6 of Galatians, and it's how-to all over the place. But this is a message about being amazed at the work and the person of Christ and how it is fulfilled and pointed to in the, in the Scriptures. So I'm calling this how the grace and glory of God is on display in the doctrine of redemption. And God is mentioned... With reference to our Redeemer, we'll start this way. If you're taking notes this morning, the Bible tells us redemption is all about God. You say, well, that's pretty obvious already, isn't it? But what I mean by that is that God identifies himself in the Scriptures as the great Redeemer of his people and often called in the Scriptures Redeemer, like this passage in Psalm 19, verse 14. Want to say it with me? Because it's a great prayer. Let the words of my and the meditations of my be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my... There he is. It's all over the Scriptures, God, with reference to the Redeemer of his, of his people. I want you to turn with me to the book of Isaiah, if you would, please. Isaiah. And find chapter 44. And... We, we could go to Isaiah 53, but then we'd get stuck there and we'd spend the rest of our time in the Redeemer that is presented to us in the Lamb of God. <laughs> but Isaiah 44, uh, let's, let's begin in verse 21. I just want to show you how it's mentioned over and over in the Scriptures. Isaiah 44, verse 21. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I've formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. And then we have this great illustration of the forgiveness of our sin. I have wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud and your sin like a heavy mist. So return to me, for I have what? I've redeemed you. Shout for joy, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout joyfully, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into a shout of joy, you mountains, O forest and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob, and in Israel he shows forth his glory. And here it is again. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer. And we're going to say, see in just a few moments a particular way that this reflects back early to God redeeming particularly a covenant people that he called to be his own. But before we do that, I want to go now to the, to the book of the Psalms, if you would. Turn with me to Psalm 103. That would be to the left of Isaiah in my Bible. Psalm 103, I think it is. Oh, yes. And this is just another beautiful passage in the Psalms. And if you love to commit the psalms to heart, oh, the psalm we read this morning was so powerful. Thank you. 
rock. Psalm 103 is just another great psalm of glory to God. I don't know where it came from. I have written in my Bible Psalm 103 as an antidote to anxiety. I don't know what that's worth for you, but I have it written as an antidote to anxiety or worry or distress. And the best thing that we can do when we are down is get our attention off of ourselves and praise God. Amen? Wow, you're an excited crowd this morning. Yeah. Well, we do. We need to get our focus off of ourselves, especially when we're in trial, as, as was reminded of in the Scripture reading, or just in the various cares of life. So let's just do this. Listen as I read Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, and who what? Redeems your life from the pit. Who crowns you with steadfast loving kindness. Hesed's that Hebrew word that corresponds to charis, grace in the New Testament. Who crowns you with the grace of God, the loving kindness and compassion. Who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. But notice again, God is just referred to there with reference to the Redeemer. So if I can, just for a moment, just the big picture of all of this. See, redemption is God's plan in his world relating to his people. And it involves the whole trinity, the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And in eternity past, the triune God determined a plan of redemption motivated by the love of God Controlled by the justice of God, if I can use that word, controlled by the justice of God to reconcile sinners to himself. And that plan is called, overall, it's called the atonement relating to the person of Christ. And redemption is the explanation of that atoning work of Christ that he became a curse for us. And in that redemptive language, we have a lamb that would be slain. And when John the Baptist comes on the scene, what does he say? Behold the what? Behold the who? The lamb of God. He's pointing way back to where we're going to go in just a moment into the book of Exodus. So this redemption and the plan of God involved a lamb that would be slain, a substitute, a wrath of God that would be kindled. And we find that truth in what is called the doctrine of propitiation, where John says in 1 John 2, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Son, who is the propitiation for our sins. He is the offering and the only one that can turn away the wrath of God upon sinners. So in this great doctrine of redemption, we have a lamb slain, a wrath of God that's, that's kindled away, that's moved away, and sinners that are going to be freed. And they're going to be freed from guilt and from bondage of sin and the penalty of our sin. And all of this is to the glory of God found in the grace of God. And when there are times you just stop and say, well, Lord, and why? And why am I in this? And why why did you save me? Because it's all of grace. It's all of your mercy. For what purpose? And remember this from Ephesians 2.7. From Ephesians 2.7. Paul says, by grace you are saved through faith. Right? In Ephesians 2. 
But in 2.7, he says, why? So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That for all eternity, you and I, saved by the grace of God, would be trophies to the glory of God. From him and to him be all things. To glory to, for him forever and ever. Amen. Well, but... In this idea of redemption, there is a particular book with a whole lot of terminology about redemption because it is the redemption of a particular people that are bought out of bondage that they've experienced for some 430 years. Where are we going, Pastor? Glad you asked. Turn with me to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 6. Exodus 6. And here we have the great display of God's redemption out of a a people in bondage for over 400 years, and it's the nation of Israel. And God says to Moses, go and tell the Pharaoh, everybody with me, let my... And they're going to go, but they're going to be bought out. And they're going to be bought by blood. For they were, not all of Israel was saved, don't misunderstand me, But they were, and we are, a blood-bought people in the gospel. So we're in Exodus chapter 6, and I want to read verses 1 through verse 6. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for under compulsion he shall let them go, and under compulsion he shall drive them out out of his land. God spoke further to Moses and said, I am the Lord, And I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob as God Almighty. Here's that El Shaddai, right? God Almighty. But by my name, Lord, I did not make myself known to them that is by his name, Jehovah, or Yahweh, that he's going to reveal to the people later as his covenant name. Verse 4, I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourned. Furthermore, I have heard the groanings of the sons of Israel because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage. And I've remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage, and I also will, I'm going to redeem you with an outstretched arm. Synonym for deliverance. But notice the terminology, and here's the word that corresponds to the ones in the New Testament. Redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgment. And if we know anything about redemption, we know it requires a price, a payment. And so when we come over to chapter 11, just to kind of move fast here, With chapter 11, we have part of what was done in buying out by redemptive love these people out of bondage that he will call to be his own, and it is a desire for them to be light unto the nations. Chapter 11, verse 5. If you're with me, would you say amen? Okay, 11, 5. And verse 4, thus says the Lord God about midnight, I'm going out into the midst of Egypt, And all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of the Pharaoh, who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl, who is behind the millstone, all the firstborn of the cattle as well. 
Pharaoh's household, all down, firstborn man and beast. By that means, I'm going to deliver you over into chapter 12. You shouldn't even have to turn. Look at verse 3 now with me, if you would, please. 12.3. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's household. A lamb for each household. Now if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them, according to what each man should eat. You are to divide the lamb. And your lamb shall be an unblemished lamb, a year old, and you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the, some of the what? Some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. Down to verse 12. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And now this day will be a memorial to you. And you shall celebrate as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance, as a Passover. And it becomes the first in the calendar foremost of the feasts of the nation of Israel. And God delivered them out by the firstborn of the Egyptians, but he spared the firstborn of Egypt. And he spared them on the basis of that Passover lamb. We're going to come to the new Passover in a few moments, aren't we, that Christ institutes. And when the Apostle Paul in the New Testament is speaking about, speaking about the person of Christ, in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, he says this, For Christ, our Passover has been sacrificed. And he gets us right from these lambs beside all the other sacrifices and points us right to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So the nation was delivered. It was bought out of bondage with blood. God says, and now I own you. I own the firstborn. And they are to be redeemed. A price was paid. A redemption was accomplished in the death of the firstborn of Egypt and a Passover lamb. And with its Blood on the doorpost of the Hebrew dwellings. And so redemption is about God. It's about deliverance of a people of God's own possession, bought with a price from Exodus and on in the Scriptures and fulfilled in the person of Christ. But also, just to move on from that, I want you to notice, secondly, redemption is also about a ransom. That's number two. It is about a ransom. And the price of redemption in the Bible is expressed or referred to us in the idea of a ransom. And in Exodus and in Leviticus, there are all kinds of things and people being redeemed. There's the redeeming of animals. There is the redeeming of land. There is the redeeming of people in bondage and in slavery. 
And in each case where a redemption takes place, there is a price that is involved, and that price in the scriptures is referred to as a ransom. And just by way of example, turn with me over to chapter 21 of Exodus. Exodus 21, 28. 21, 28. If an ox gores a man or a woman to death, that's just one example of all the circumstances in the law with reference to redeeming something or a ransom paid in order to redeem it, just driving home this truth. If an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall surely be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not go unpunished. If, however, an ox was previously in the habit of goring and its owner has been warned, yet he does not confine it and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner also shall be put to death. But notice verse 30. If a ransom is demanded of him, and, and the difference here is if it's, if it's negligence, it's one thing. If it's intentional, it's something else. So notice verse 31. It, if it is decided that a ransom is demanded of him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is demanded of him. So a ransom would be, play, would be paid in order to redeem that man if it was determined that was unintentional. And that just, just an example of redemption by a ransom. And one of the things that's happening oftentimes in this process of a ransom and redemption is that many times the redeeming relates to a relative or what we call a kinsman redeemer, Right? And a family member would come along and pay the ransom in order to redeem that person in terms of slavery or whatever else was taking place. And there was supposed to be one that would take place likewise every 50 years in the, in the year of Jubilee. But prior to that time, a redemption could be experienced in that way. And I'm, I've got a quiz for you now again. You ready? There's a book in the Bible, a short book, it's titled, it has the name of a woman as its title. And oftentimes we kind of call it a love story or whatever, but it ain't a love story. It's a story that focuses upon redemption as a kinsman redeemer. And the name of that book is the book of, book of Ruth. Everyone, well done. Now I want you to turn to Ruth if you can find it. And it comes right after Joshua and Judges, does it not? I think it does in my Bible or I'm in trouble. There we go. And I know the beauty of Ruth where, uh, where your, your God will be my God and where you go, I will go. And I remember hearing that at weddings sang, you know, with reference for a woman to her, to her, to her uh, new husband and so forth. And I know the beauty of all of that and how God is working in the providence of God. And that's always worth noting. But really, I want to tell you, chapter 4 is really the heart of the book of Ruth. And what's going on there is that Naomi, remember, instructs Ruth to go to a kinsman redeemer and to Ruth to 
put herself at the feet of that man by the name of, everybody? Boaz. And make that claim on behalf of Naomi and her her uh, relatives and her need as being a woman in, in tremendous need. And doing so, Ruth is requiring of Boaz to function then as a, as a kinsman redeemer. And I'm just going to start in chapter 4 and read for a while. Will you just follow along with me? If you found Ruth. Okay, chapter 4. Now Boaz went up to the gate, and he sat down, and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. Remember, there was somebody else with reference in line to redeeming this land, owning the land. So he said, turn aside, friend. I'm here. And he turned aside, and he sat down, and he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down in order to witness this. And then he, Boaz, said to the closest relative, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother, had to do it, to our brother Elimelech. So I thought to inform you, saying, buy it now. Buy it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people. And if you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know, for there is one, no one but you who redeems it, who can redeem it. And after that, I after you. And he said, I'll redeem it. And then Boaz said, on the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth. Why? The responsibility to raise up heritage to that particular line. And when we get to the end of Ruth, there's part of the big deal here with reference to a child that's going to be born that is in the line of King David, ultimately to the line of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we always stand amazed at the providence and the plan of God in his world in terms of bringing the person of Jesus Christ. Back to verse 5. Then Boaz said, On the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. The closest relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. You may have my right of redemption, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redemption and the exchange of land and so forth. And I'm going to stop there, but I just wanted you to see that it was done by a price. And Boaz is going to pay that price to redeem Naomi, and particularly Ruth takes her as his his wife and buys back the property and the whole thing here that is going on with the wonder of, of redemption taking place. Now, what I wanted to point out concerning that is not only does that point to Jesus Christ, but how does that relate to Christ for us as we come to the Lord's Supper? And what I want to point out is this, that Boaz is going to pay a price with money to redeem this land. Christ is going to pay a price to receive, redeem sinners but not with money, but with what? With his own life. And so we come to the New Testament and we read, redemption is about a ransom. And we see that stated in the scriptures concerning Christ. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life for a ransom. Pay the price. Timothy also expresses this. For there is one God 
and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. John 14, he's the way, the truth, join me. He's the way, and he's the truth, and he's the, and no man comes to the Father but through him, right? He's the single mediator from, from man to God. It's Jesus Christ, but notice, who gave himself as a ransom for all. The price that he paid in his own life to redeem sinners. And again, this gets back to the reality of to satisfy the justice of God and the holiness of God. He is not only the ransom that alone qualifies on behalf of sinners as the substitute and satisfactory payment for sin, but that payment was made to God and provided by God. That's the wonder of it all. Jesus is the only offering for sin that satisfies God. And quote from a theology, the ransom of Christ's blood was paid to God whose holiness demanded a just payment for sin. And then we begin to understand what Peter is saying when he says, you are not redeemed by silver and gold from your former manner of life, but what? With the precious blood of a lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if I can say it this way this morning, you were redeemed with what is the most loved and valued possession of the Father. This is my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. This is the best of heaven to redeem the worst of earth. The most valued thing of the Father is the Son to redeem us in his Son and his Son to become a curse for us. Are you humbled by that? You ought to be third. Third. I have 19 points. This is number three. Redemption is a rescue. Have you been rescued? I was in grade school, and we didn't have a pool in our town. Yes, there were pools, but we didn't have a pool in our little town. But we had a great swimming hole downtown below the feed mill. And we would go down there and jump in that thing. And when I was in grade school, a lot of high schools went down there too. It was a pretty good size. We'd call it a creek. You call it a creek? Okay, it was water. Okay? And there was an embankment on the other side of it, up a ways, and you could cross over, you know, where the where it was real shallow, climb up across there and 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 jump in to the to the water. And it was probably maybe six, eight, maybe ten feet high. When you got up there, it was a hundred feet. You know what I mean? And I'm in grade school, high schools are all doing that, and I wanted to impress some of my friends in some of these high schools and all of my sinful pride. So I got up there, and I'm going to jump in. And I did. And then I remembered I didn't know how to swim. And I went down. I can still see light through the dirty water that I'm looking up. And I went down, up, and I went down again, and I couldn't get myself up. And a high schooler grabbed me, pulled me up, pulled me out. I want to tell you something about a rescue. You don't rescue yourself. You have to be rescued. Sinners have to be rescued. 
Amen? And this beautiful idea of redemption is pictured to us likewise in a rescue. Paul really begins his book in Galatians with that fact, remember? You remember every single verse we've already covered, do you not? Look at verse 4 of how he begins Galatians. Who gave himself for us so that he might what? Look what's next. He might what? He might rescue us from this present evil age. And as we wonder of the, we just back up and we're overwhelmed at the wonder of our salvation, he rescued us in the past from a penalty of our sin, right? When he became a curse for us. Better do it this way with you looking. In the past, rescued us from the very penalty of our sin. He's rescuing us in the present from sin, the bondage of sin, dominating our lives. And we go over into Romans chapter 6, and we're reminded of the fact. We are no longer under the old master. And we have a new master in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in him, we have freedom to say no to sin and yes to pleasing him. So not only in the past rescue, present rescue, but Paul says in Romans 8.32 that we're eagerly awaiting for the rescue for the redemption of our bodies. It seemed like there's a whole lot of stuff going on this past week in a number of you in your bodies. Here's the cure. Don't get old. (laughs) Amen. But if you do know this, you've been redeemed, and part of that redemption is going to be your, your body. And one day, Christ comes back, where the Lord takes you home, you beat us to heaven. He's not done with the body. And he's going to conform it to the image of the Redeemer. Won't that be something? Amen? And we won't even know what pain is, and we won't know what sin is, but we'll know who Christ is because we'll see him face to face. And all of this relates to this grand and glorious thing of this truth of the Redeemer. And it takes us right back to Christ redeemed us from that curse. So redemption is about God, it's about a ransom, it's about a rescue. It's about Christ becoming a curse for us. And you who have been redeemed, who have been redeemed, are commanded by the Redeemer to remember what he did to do so, to redeem you. And that takes us to the Lord's Supper this morning. So what I want to do is I want to pray, give us a few moments, pray together, and then I'm going to uh, lead us in the Lord's Supper together. All right? We're going to go right into the Lord's Supper, and then we're going to close with a hymn. So let's bow our heads together and praise God for what he's done on our behalf. Father, thank you. Thank you. Yes, a blood-bought people. You are holy. You are righteous. You are just. You're good. You're merciful. You're patient. You're wise in all of your ways. And this great plan of salvation, this great plan in redemption reflects your glory to your praise. And I would ask, I would pray right now, Father, that everyone in here could say this morning, I'm one of those trophies. I've turned from my sin. And I've turned to Christ. And I've asked him to save me 
And I'm still a sinner, but I'm a sinner saved by grace. And my name is in that Galatians 3, 13. And I believe that he became a curse for me, and he paid the price of my sin, and he is my Savior. And if, if that's not you today, trust him right now. Because you're under the curse. You need a Savior. And as people of the book, we want to obey your word in remembering, remembering what it took to redeem us. Death of our Savior, who knew no sin but became sin. We praise you for that this morning. We are are humbled by the wonder of it all. And as we partake now of the Lord's Supper together, be pleased with our hearts being yours, being cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.